Father, we pray that in our own lives, in the midst of our own kind of chaos and our own mess and our own difficulty, and as we enter into seasons of life where we have no idea what's happening or why it's happening, uh, Father, we entrust our lives to you as well and ask that your will would be done in our lives. And Father, that's why we come to your word. It's because we want to see your revealed will, how you've called us to live and move and act in this world. And so, Father, we know you've got guidance for us in the midst of our own kind of waiting scenarios, in the midst of our own longings. And so we come so that we would hear from you and that we would receive your truth, your life, and your guidance. And so, Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would speak um, and that you'd speak clearly and powerfully to each one of us this morning. Anything that may hinder us from hearing or distract us, just push it off to the side, Father. And we just ask that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. All God's people said, Amen. Pastor Jason will be preaching on Genesis 29, 31 through 35. And uh, there are Bibles in the seats, if you're interested in using them, on page 46. <clears throat> when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she had given birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. And so she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. Um, This phrase is one that's been uh, going around quite a bit lately. Um, A low-trust environment. I've heard it to describe various situations and scenarios, but uh, just recently I've been hearing it more and more being used to describe just our kind of current cultural situation, that that we're living in a time in society where it's a very low-trust environment. And, And the more I've been thinking about it, I think we, if we just take a moment to think, it's easy to understand why it is. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, someone got a hold of my debit card information and tried to use it in a bunch of waffle shops down in the southern United States. Thankfully, the card got caught and whatever. But, you know, those are the types of things that cause you to lose trust, right? And, and on a regular basis, we're encountering things like that, right? How many people in this last week probably had one or two or three voicemails talking to you about your auto insurance or your car's warranty or the IRS is coming for you or 
because people are constantly trying to trick, trap, lie, deceive to try to get your money. And then you go online and you know that you're kind of leery to click on anything online because you don't know if you're going to click on something that's going to put a virus on your computer or it's going to be a phishing scheme or something because people are always lying and deceiving. And all of that just kind of wears down your trust. And so now you start to go through life kind of just on edge, right? Wondering, can I trust this or not? And then on top of that, we we kind of look out at um, our leaders and we see leaders who are lying and manipulating and scheming in order to kind of work their, themselves up into positions of power and authority. And, we, and that causes us to lose trust in our leaders. And then we, we look at all of these different leaders, many of them whom we've admired over the years, many whom we've trusted over the years, and then they end up in some kind of a scandal. And we find out that for the last however long that we were respecting them, trusting them, that they were lying to us. They were deceiving us. And that causes us to erode trust. And so we, we see all of these things kind of happening. We're just surrounded by situations and scenarios that cause us to be on edge and, and to not trust people and situations. And, and really, it, it's really no surprise that we're in such a polarized society right now because we're in a situation where we don't really trust anyone we're always wondering what kind of scheming they're up to. What are they trying to pull? And, and in the midst of that, not only does it kind of create a, a low trust environment, but it also usually ends up following itself with, with fear and, and anxiety, right? Because we're afraid we're going to fall into a trap. We're afraid we're going to be betrayed. We're worried about these things. And it kind of just gives us kind of low-level um, kind of general fear and anxiety, but also in the midst of that, there's this longing that kind of spritz, kind of comes through all of that because we're we see all of this going around and we're longing. Isn't there something more? Isn't there something better out there? And and as I've been met, uh, thinking on that this last week, I was realizing that's really what Advent is about. It's about longing. It, you know, over the years, I've always said Advent's about waiting, which, which it is. Advent, the word itself just means coming. And so we talk about the first coming of Jesus at his birth and the second coming of Jesus that still hasn't come. And, and we enter into the season of Advent waiting for those events to come. But it's, waiting is too passive, isn't it? Longing has something more where we recognize where we add is not where we will be, and there's something better coming. God has something better in store, and so we don't just wait for it, but we, we long for it. And that's what we're going to see in the life of Judah. Uh, Judah's life, from beginning to end, is filled with longing, um, and we're going to see at portions in the middle where we're going to be stirred to our own longing as we look at his life and kind of what's going on. And, you know, we're starting at the very beginning of his life, at his birth, because it's really significant to understand really all of the rest of Judah's life. And, and you don't really understand Judah's birth 
unless you understand his father's life, right? Unless you understand Jacob and what was going on with him. Because Jacob just is one of those guys who keeps doing Jacob things, right? And so we know Jacob's name, it means one who grabs hold of or one who takes over because as his mom was giving birth to him and his twin brother, he was grabbing hold of his heel. And so his whole life is just described by that as one who kind of grabs hold of and takes over his brother's inheritance. He just grabs hold of it, takes it from him. He grabs hold of and takes over his father's blessing. And so, you know, if he was in the United States, we would, many people would be trying to put him in a position of a CEO. But like, this guy gets things done. He makes things happen. He grabs life by the horns and he gets things done. And yet, what we often see him doing is doing that all in his own strength, all in his own wisdom, and it ends up causing a mess. And what's interesting and what kind of throws us all is in the midst of all of that lying and deceiving of of Jacob, he runs away from his family because his brother is going to kill him. (laughs) And he runs off to Haran. And then on his way there, God gives him this promise. I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I'll give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It's a massive promise. And most of us read that and go, why Jacob? Like this guy. Like, I wouldn't hang out with him, and now God's giving him this kind of a promise. And I suppose you'll eventually be asking yourself, why Judah? And, you know, what's interesting is is how how the story is told. God gives Jacob this really beautiful promise, and, and God says, I will give to you and your offspring. I will, I will, I will. But then immediately after this, we see Jacob grabbing hold of things, taking charge of things, trying to make things happen on his own. And most commentators say that the next kind of messiness that happens is Jacob trying to fulfill this promise on his own. The very next thing he does is he heads off to Haran and he sees Rachel and he thinks, that's the one. She's the one. She's going to bear me all these children. She's going to fulfill God's promise for me. And he like literally takes things into his own hand and he like lifts the stone off of the well. And and I kind of think it's funny because the Bible says usually they wait for like three or four shepherds to get there to lift the stone off because it's so heavy. But Jacob sees a cute girl and he's like, let me show her something. And he lifts the stone off and helps water her sheep. And he goes to Laban and he says, hey, I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to get things done so I can marry this woman and she can fulfill the promise of God for me. I'll work for you for seven years. And it seems like his plan's working perfectly until it doesn't. Because he finds out quickly that Laban is also someone who gets things done. (laughs) And grabs hold of things. And there's this kind of great line. I hadn't noticed it until this week. Um, When when Jacob and Laban meet, Laban says, like, you're you're bone of my flesh, right? Which is kind of like we would say, on the one hand, we would say, like, you're my flesh and blood, right? Like, you're my relative. 
But there's kind of a play on words there where Laban's also kind of saying, like, we're cut from the same cloth. Like, we're relatives, but we're both the same kind of people, which is why we see Laban eventually outplaying Jacob at his own game, right? Uh, People, I heard a pastor this morning say, the trickster gets tricked, right? And so after seven years, Jacob comes to Laban and says, it's time for me to marry Rachel finally. And Laban says, I've got a plan for this. I'm going to throw a really big party. I'm going to get Jacob drunk so he doesn't really know what's going on, and I'm going to switch wives out with him. I mean, how drunk do you have to be? But that's, he is, Switches him out on the wedding night, and, and Genesis next morning says, like, ha! Huh! You know, it's like, oh no, it's a different woman. And he's married to Leah, and he's obviously really upset because we've already been told that Jacob loved Rachel, but Leah, not real excited about her. And so Jacob grabs hold of things. He takes charge. He says, okay, let's make another deal. Let's figure this out. I'll work another seven years so I can have Rachel too. And so they kind of work this deal out, and the story ends with this ominous line. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And, and everything about how that's written is ominous. On the one hand, the word, where the idea of served is almost using the language of like slavery, Like, Jacob now was enslaved to Laban for another seven years. But also, we see there's going to be this tension, right, between Jacob and Rachel and Leah. Because Jacob loves Rachel, but Leah, not so much. And again, it's one of these stories, right, where you just see it's just filled, beginning to end with what? Lying, deceit, scheming, manipulation. And it's all filled with longing. It's all filled with this longing for something. And, and actually what we see most of the longing is people longing for this thing that's greater and yet trying to take matters into their own hands to get it done, right? Jacob longing for God's promise to be fulfilled and saying, if I just do this, I'm going to make it happen. And eventually we see Rachel Rachel's longing for something, right? Longing for children. But she's not waiting for the Lord to provide. She tries to make it happen in her own strength. We see Leah longing for her husband, longing for his love. And yet she eventually takes matters into her own hands, trying to to make that happen. And so there's, there's all of this longing. There's all of this grabbing hold of, that was what Jacob's name means. And, you know, it makes sense that that Leah's longing for her husband because she knows he's not fond of her. She knows. It's not like she was oblivious to the fact that she had to trick him into marrying her. (laughs) And she was part of the plan. She's not completely innocent in all of this either. And she knows that Jacob's not real fond of her, and she knows that Jacob thinks that Rachel's the one who's going to fulfill all of God's promises. And so she kind of feels like someone who's been kind of kicked to the curb, someone thrown aside. And then we read the next verse, which says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And it's a really powerful verse in 
contrast to the verse that we just read, right? This verse we say, see, Rachel lo- Jacob loved Rachel. But then the next verse we see, but Rachel was barren. Right? Jacob loved Rachel. He thought Rachel was the one whom God was going to fulfill all of his promises through his. Rachel's the one who's going to give him all of these children that are going to help fill the earth and bless the nations. And yet, Rachel's barren. But Leah, the one he's like not real excited about, she's the one that the Lord sees and he opens her womb. And eventually, we see she has six, like gives birth to six of the 12 children of Jacob, more than any, you know, more, the same as all the other three women that get thrown in the mix eventually combined. But, but right here at the beginning, it's really important to see that she has like four sons, boom, kind of one right after the other, right after the other. And, and in the midst of this, in the midst of all of the scheming, all the manipulation, all of the deceit, all of the longing, all of the grasping, uh, we see God still at work in the midst of all of that. And, and God's at work, and as he's at work, he's, he's actually teaching them something. And, and, and as you look through the birth of these four sons, you see that Leah, God's teaching Leah a lesson. And, and she's learning it. And, and you have to think about this because we read it in four verses, right? So it seems like this all happened quickly. But, but we know biology. We know that you don't have four children in the period of a few months, right? It's, well, a minimum over three years if it's like bam, bam, bam. But we're thinking like four years, right? So it's a four-year period where God's working in Leah trying to teach her a lesson. And, and so we first see this. It says, Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. All right, so you see this kind of multiple things in, in her response to the child. On the one hand, she recognizes the Lord's done this. The Lord has blessed me. The Lord has met me in here. But it's all kind of intertwined with this longing for her husband's love, right? She says, now I gave him a son. Now he's going to love me. But it doesn't change anything. So then another son comes. So she conceives again. She bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. See, again, this kind of, because the Lord, because my, late, my husband doesn't love me, he's given me another son. Hopefully this relationship with my husband's going to change. She's just longing, 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 and thinking all of this has to be about her and her husband. And yet she has another son, Nothing changes. Next verse. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. This time it's even more explicit because there's no reference to the Lord (laughs) in there. She doesn't acknowledge that the Lord helped her. She doesn't acknowledge that the Lord blessed her. It was all about maybe now finally... My husband will, will love me in this. I'm hitting buttons all over. Because she's still longing for her husband. And yet, this last verse, 
this last child, something changes. She says, she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I'll praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. Right? And, and you could see that the Lord was teaching her something in this. All of the other times, it was all about, well, maybe this will make me finally happy. Maybe this will help my husband love me and my life will be good and my life will be perfect and, and everything will be good. And then she, it didn't happen. And so she went again. She tried again. Another one, another one, another one. And none of it made her happy. But finally, with Judah, she said, it's almost as if she said, I can't control my husband but the Lord keeps blessing me, so I'm going to praise the Lord. And uh, one of the commentators said, like, she may not enjoy her husband's affection, but God has given her four sons, and she must be thankful for that. This time I'll praise the Lord. And here, as in the Psalms, lament turns into praise, right? All of the other ones were all mainly lament. It wasn't, she wasn't rejoicing over her children. She was lamenting her husband's lack of love. But in this one, she says, no, I'm going to praise the Lord. And, and here's what I really think is helpful and important about the lesson that she learns. On the one hand, she's still longing, right? We're going to see that just like five verses later. She's going to be fighting with her sister and manipulating and, and trying to do all of this stuff to get her husband. So she's still longing, but yet in the midst of her longing, she learns to praise God for what he's doing. Maybe he's not doing what she wants him to be doing, but God's doing something, and she recognizes it, and she praises him for it. And, and it has this kind of a feel in it that uh, the Apostle Paul says in, in the New Testament, he, he says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, right? There's this idea where we can be sorrowful and weighty and heavy with all of the mess and yet being able to rejoice in it. And, and what we see in Leah is this longing. We can be people who are longing for something more, something better that God has in store, and yet still able to praise him in the midst of it. And, you know, we each, we each have our own tendencies when it comes to that. Some of us are the people who are more easily always longing. <laughs> We're longing for something better, longing for something more, longing for what God has in store, and then we miss out on the praise part. We're just always like, God, fix this, fix this, fix this. But there's other people who are all just chipper and like, the Lord's blessing me all over the place, but they're never longing for the greater thing that God has in store for them. And, and the Bible kind of holds us in this tension where we recognize that the world as it is right now after the fall is broken. And he has something bigger in store. And we should be longing for that day when God's going to make it all right, make it all new. And yet, that doesn't mean there's nothing to praise him for now. And, you know, in the, in the midst of this story, one of the, probably the most beautiful parts of this story that most of us probably would skip over because it's just, well, if they're having another kid and they're just kind of giving us some genealogy, is that, that God's reminding us that in the midst of all of that chaos, he's doing something. And he's doing something that none of them knew was happening. It was kind of sliding under the radar. They didn't see it happening. And God's carrying out this much bigger plan that none of them would have ever asked 
or imagined, right? We see one of the sons that she has is named Levi. And who's going to eventually be born from Levi? Well, a few important people, but one is Moses, who's writing the book, by the way, which is kind of fun. He's kind of talking about his own story. But Moses, right, is the one that God uses to lead his people out of Egypt and to lead his people in the desert, which is a place of longing, uncertainty, right? So that, uh, the Levites are eventually placed over the tabernacle and over the temple of God. They're, they're the ones who are going to serve as the primary mediator between God and his people for thousands of years. And that all came out of this, this, this kind of moment, all of this mess. Um, but we also know that Judah's significant. Um, and I think it's significant that Judah's the child that she recognizes God's plan and recognizes to praise God in the midst of the, the chaos and to praise God in the midst of the mess and to praise God in the midst of the longing because we know from the line of Judah eventually comes David who's the man after God's own heart. David, the, the, the king who, who God says, your kingdom will never end, right? And we know that that promise eventually runs its line all the way through history down to Jesus, who's born of David, born of the line of Judah, and ultimately born of longing Leah. And, and it's a reminder that God's plan is being carried out in ways that nobody had any clue. And, and it's a reminder of a couple of things, really. It, it, it kind of answers one of the questions that I was asked when I mentioned, hey, we're going to go through the life of Judah for Advent. And I had a bunch of people kind of look at me sideways and say, man, that guy's life is a mess. <laughs> like, why? We're going to see some crazy stuff coming up here. And like, why him? And the answer is that in the midst of all of that craziness and all of that mess and all of the manipulation and the scheming and the, and the you know, lying and the deceit, all of that, God's still, his plan's still coming about. And it doesn't matter how much Jacob gets things done, he's not going to detour God's plan. Um, God's plan's going to be carried out in the midst of it. And uh, one of the commentators said, Leah, the unwanted and unloved wife, gives birth to the forebears of four important tribes of Israel. And as later Israel read the story of Laban's description and Jacob's wrong choices, they would have become aware of a deep mystery that their sovereign Lord can fulfill his promises even through human deception and scheming. And that's important for us today because... We look around and what do we see? Human deception, human scheming, right? We see it all over the place. Everybody's trying to carry out a plan, right? We, we look at everything going on between Russia and Ukraine and we think there's all this scheming and deception. We don't know what to believe, right? Israel and Palestine, we don't know what to believe. There's scheming and deception going on all over there. We see it in our own country. We see it and, and we're kind of just feel like it's hard to know what's going on or what's happening or hard to even see any way in which God's plan could be carried out in the midst of this. And yet, we're reminded way back at the beginning that God's been carrying out his plan in the midst of all of that messiness, all of that chaos, all of that scheming for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. 
and nothing's changed now. And it's a reminder that even now, in the midst of all of the chaos of the world that we see, or maybe the chaos of our own personal life, God's carrying out his plan. It's happening right now. Whether you can see it or not, he's doing it, and he's probably doing it in ways that you would never expect. And, and here's why that's, I mean, that's important for a lot of ways, but it's important in connection with this story because when we recognize that, that God is carrying out his plan in the midst of all of this chaos, it reminds us we can trust him. And then when we learn that we can trust him, it frees us up to praise him in the midst of chaos and mess. Because when you're in a messy situation and you're longing for something more and you have no idea what, in the midst of all this chaos, you can stop and say, I know my God is doing something. I may not be able to see it. I may not be able to understand it, but I know he's doing something. I trust him. And so I can praise him. I give him thanks. Even when I haven't got what I wanted, even if I don't understand, I can still praise him. And so that's what Advent is reminding us, that even in the midst of crazy messes, God's carrying out his plan, and it trains us, it teaches us to be people who trust him. Even when we can't see it all, but we can trust him, we can praise him, but still longing for what he has in store. Right? And, and Advent in particular reminds us that in the midst of all of this mess, God sent his son, didn't he? And, and Jesus' life, if you look at Jesus' life, his life was began and end surrounded by what? Lying, deception, manipulation, scheming, right? He was born in the midst of that, and he died in the midst of that, being betrayed. And in the midst of all of that lying and scheming and deceit, God didn't carry out his plan despite that. He did it right through it. And so we can praise God that, that he does that and through Jesus' life and his death, our sins are forgiven and we're set free from our sins and we see Jesus rise from the dead which gives us a reminder of what? There's something greater in store for us. Something to long for. And, and, and we... We thank God, we praise him now for forgiveness of sins and life in this world, but then we long for that greater thing to come for us, that, that there is a day when we'll be not just forgiven from our sins, but completely set free from our sins, where sin and death will be no more. And we long for the day when Christ is going to come again to judge the living and the dead. And he's going to put an end to all lying and scheming and deceit and manipulation. It will be no more. And his kingdom will come and his will will be done. And we'll spend eternity in a place that is not a low-trust environment, but a place of full, wholehearted trust and rest and peace and joy in our God. And to connect it with this passage, we'll spend eternity with all of our longings ultimately finally fulfilled in Christ. Let's come to God in prayer. Father, we're thankful not just for stories like this, but for the way these stories remind us of who you are. And for the way they teach us about how you worked in the past and how you're working even now in our own lives. 
And Father, we come to you and we first confess because we know we see a lot of ourselves in Jacob and Laban and Rachel and Leah that we see ourselves constantly trying to grasp and take hold of the things that we long for impatiently, not waiting for you to work, not trusting you to carry out your plan, but thinking we need to do it in our own strength and wisdom. So Father, we confess that to you. We ask your forgiveness from that, your cleansing from that. And we pray, we ask that your spirit would move in us and change our hearts, restore us so that we would rest in you more fully. We would trust you in the midst of all of this craziness and mess. And Father, we pray that your spirit would work in us to open our hearts and our mouths to praise you. Even when we don't see it all, even when we don't understand it, even while we're longing, open our mouths, our hearts to praise you because we know that you're working. We know that you're carrying out your perfect plan. So, Father, stir that in our hearts this season of Advent as we lead up into Christmas. Father, teach us to be people who are longing yet always praising, longing for the day when your kingdom will fully come and you will be all in all. All God's people said, amen.